Welcome to the Private School Leader Podcast, where private school leaders learn how to thrive and not just survive as they serve and lead their schools. I strongly believe that it is possible to have a long and happy and fulfilling career as a private school leader. And my passion is to help you figure out exactly how to do just that right here on the Private School Leader Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Minkus. So Captain Edward James Smith turned 62 years old in 1912. And at that point in his career, he had 40 years of experience as a captain of a wide range of different kinds of ships. And when he, in 1912, at age 62, with this experience, was named the captain of the crown jewel of the White Star Fleet, the Titanic, he was thrilled. And so thrilled, in fact, that he decided that this epic uh, first journey, this maiden voyage of the Titanic across the Atlantic Ocean, would be his final journey and that he would retire once the Titanic arrived in New York City. So 40 years of experience for Captain Edward James Smith. But we know the story. And what I want to focus on is the part of the story where Captain Smith had many warnings and he had many other things that he could have done that would have avoided this tragedy. And we've all probably heard that there were warnings in the North Atlantic of ice fields and icebergs. And he ignored seven different warnings. And actually, instead of slowing down, he increased the speed of the ship so that they could make their destination in New York City on time because of all of the media attention on the Titanic. And one of the problems with the North Atlantic that night on the night of April 14th into the morning of April 15th in 1912, was that the seas were very calm and it was a new moon. And so when everyone who is a, uh, sits up in the, in the crow's nest and is a person with binoculars who is looking for icebergs, what they're relying on is for the waves to be crashing up against the iceberg, and they can see that from a great distance with their binoculars, but they also um, benefit from having some moonlight. And so it's not just that there were seven warnings, it's that there were seven warnings on a night with a new moon and with calm seas. And oh, by the way, Captain Smith knew that the, the spotters in the crow's nest, that their binoculars had been misplaced and they were just looking with the naked eye, trying to see in the, the blackness of the, the night in the North Atlantic Sea. They were looking for these icebergs with their, with their bare eyes and not with binoculars. And so what did Captain Smith do with all of this information? Well, he went to bed. And just before he went to bed, he told Jack Phillips, the radio operator, to ignore those incoming ice warnings and to make sure to send the first class Easter messages out instead on the radio. And then finally, on that ship, 50% of the crew members, more than 50% of the crew members had not been trained in how to deploy the lifeboats. And so we know the rest of the story. 
On the morning of April 15, 1912, the Titanic struck an iceberg, and a few hours later it sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, and 1,517 people died that night, including Captain Edward James Smith. And so we wonder, sometimes we wonder about the decisions that people make. And to be honest, sometimes we look back on decisions that we've made and say, why on earth did I do that? But think of this, you know, sometimes we we see in the news celebrities like Lori Loughlin of Full House fame, where she and her husband uh, were facing jail time for trying to get their daughters into USC on a crew scholarship when neither of them had ever been in a crew skull or on a rowing team. And then you have NFL coaches that make a lot of money for making good um, decisions in crucial moments. And then in a huge moment, in a crucial moment, in a big game, they make uh, these blunders when they make these decisions. And so we you know, and I could go on and on about politicians and the scandals and decisions that they make and just different things that we see. And we just wonder how on earth did someone make that decision? Well, as private school leaders, we make hundreds of decisions every day and we try to get them right. But we also are under a lot of stress. Our jobs are stressful. The pace is frantic and people are looking to us to make good decisions, but also to make quick decisions. And that's a challenge. And so on today's episode of the Private School Leader Podcast, we are going to discuss six ways to make better decisions in high-stress situations. But before we get into today's topic, I've created a free resource for you called The Six Things That Every Private School Teacher Wants From Their Leader. This guide is a six-page PDF that could be a real game-changer for you, and I guarantee you that if you do these six things, the teachers at your school will be happy to follow you. And you can get, grab that free guide by going to theprivateschoolleader.com guide. That is the six things that every private school teacher wants from their leader at theprivateschoolleader.com guide. And I just quickly wanted to ask two favors. First, wherever you listen to this podcast, if you could write a review and rate the podcast, that helps the algorithm push the content out as a suggested podcast to more leaders all over the world. And if you've gotten any value from any of these episodes, I would just ask you to please share a link to the podcast with another leader in your life at your school or maybe in an affinity group or someone, a colleague that you met at a at a conference to share the podcast with another leader, and then also to share the link of the podcast with an aspiring leader at your school. And in private schools in North America, we're at or headed for a real problem with a shortage of qualified heads of school at our private schools. And so we're always looking for those aspiring leaders in our schools to raise them up with Um, all of the leadership skills and all of the other things that go along with it. And so hopefully this podcast can help them get an early start on that. So again, if you would rate and review the podcast and also share the link with another leader in your life, an aspiring leader at your school. And as always, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your busy week to listen to the podcast. Okay, so today's 
topic is six ways to make better decisions in high stress situations. And so, you know, I'm just going to go through this quickly, but some examples that immediately come to mind are a parent meeting or making a decision about student discipline or making a financial decision. Do we um, not pay this bill so that we can make payroll this Friday? Um, or it could be bigger, more capital kind of decisions about the roof or the parking lot or a new construction project. Those can be very stressful decisions. Um, emergencies that um, happen at school with um, just whether it is, you know, a student who has a seizure or an employee who falls and hits their head on the playground or perhaps even some of the other things that we don't want to get into that could be much more um, dangerous and problematic at our schools. It's stressful even thinking about that. And then, of course, um, which was the bane of the existence of school leaders that um, are above the Mason-Dixon line, and that's the decision about snow uh, closures or uh, two-hour delay. Um, Just those can be highly stressful to make those decisions. And so what are the six ways to make better decisions in high stress situations? So I'm going to run through them and then we'll break them down one by one. All right. The six ways to make better decisions in high stress situations. Number one, avoid amygdala hijack. Number two, remember the space. Number three, plan ahead. Number four, redefine urgency. Number five, gather information. And number six, ask yourself two questions. All right. So I know that um, you're probably multitasking as you listen to the podcast. And so I'll take good care of you in the show notes at the private school leader.com um, slash episode 68. And I actually prefer and encourage you to multitask and listen to the podcast on your commute or when you're running errands or taking the dog for a walk or whatever it is that you do so that you can get hopefully what I am providing, what I'm trying to provide is your weekly dose of um, inspiration, professional development, encouragement, and things that will help you um, do this very difficult job of being a private school leader. So let's get into number one, avoid amygdala hijack. So I think it's important, first of all, to understand what happens to the brain during high-stress situations. And this term, amygdala hijack, was coined by psychologist Daniel Goleman in his amazing book, Emotional Intelligence. He published that book in the mid-90s. I'll link it in the show notes. And so Daniel Goleman described amygdala hijack as a situation where emotion takes over logic and reason. And so we know what the word hijack means. We usually think about an airplane where somebody hijacks the plane, they take it over by force, and then they are the ones in control of the destination of that plane. And so you're going along in your day, and you are in control of your emotions, you are in control of your decision making, but then all of a sudden, the amygdala kicks in, and you are your brain is flooded with uh, cortisol and um, adrenaline, and then all of a sudden um, this hijack takes place where you're no longer in control of those logical, common sense, decision-making skills. And 
amygdala hijack is an emotional response that is immediate and sometimes overwhelming. And it's sometimes in dis, it, it is disproportionate to the actual stimulus. Has that ever happened to you? I know it's happened to me that sometimes our, re, our emotional reaction doesn't seem proportional to the thing that has caused it. But it has triggered a much more significant emotional threat. That's part of the amygdala's job in the, in the brain is to keep us safe, that fight or flight. And so sometimes the disproportionate response physically and how it affects our brain is intended to keep us safe and to be able to run away and get away from the bear that's chasing us. But it can also help us or impair us and keep us from making good decisions if our logic and common sense gets hijacked by our emotions. And so the amygdala is made up of two small round structures that are located closer to your forehead in front of the hippocampi, um, kind of near your temporal lobes. And the amygdalae, because there are two of them, are actually involved in detecting and learning which parts of our surrounding are important and have emotional significance. And so they're working all the time. And it's not just for fight or flight, but the amygdalae have uh, jobs re related to assessing the surroundings and vetting what's important, what's not when it comes to emotional significance. And I really liked how it was put in a blog post by Mark Manson. I'll link that in the show notes as well. He said, um, quote, our thinking brain is our higher level human brain. It's the intelligent, thoughtful, patient part of ourselves. But our feeling brain is our animalistic side. It's our cravings, our urges, and our desires. And so all of that is pretty straightforward. And so you're probably pretty aware of amygdala hijack, what it is and what causes it. But I just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page because knowing what it is, is really the first step in avoiding its consequences. And so how do we avoid amygdala hijack? Well, the first thing is to know all about amygdala hijack. If you realize what's happening to you, then sometimes you can um, have other things, and we'll talk about other strategies a little bit later as far as mindfulness and things like that. But the first thing and most important thing is to know what's happening. You know, when we are, when our brains get hijacked by our emotions, um, we need to know what's going on in order to try to get past that and make a good decision. And then the second thing that we can do to avoid amygdala hijack is just to increase our self-awareness um, of when it is happening and what it is going to possibly cause us to do. And so, you know, we need to just really be careful as we know, we're, you know, we're not supposed to make a decision when we're angry. And, you know, there's all kinds of research about making decisions when you're hungry or when you're sleep deprived or when, you know, all of these things that would impair us, certainly when we're emotional. And let's face it, what we do as private school leaders is emotional work. And a lot of it is high stakes emotional work. And so the amygdala is going to be kicked in and we're going to have to navigate that carefully. And then two more things. Um, one would be to just have a quick mindfulness practice when you feel that happening, you feel that starting to happen in your body and in your brain. And whether that's um, taking some deep breaths, um, whatever um, it is, I um, do a mindfulness practice when I really feel like my heart rate is up or my blood pressure is up. 
or I'm really, really stressed about something. Um, it takes about less than two minutes. Um, and what I do is, is that I start with my eyes open and I take three, I take a big deep breath in for a three count, hold it for a three count and let it out on a three count. And, you know, some people call that box breathing. But then what I do is, is that I breathe in those, that three count. And then I name in my brain something that I see. And then I do five things that I see. So that's three breaths in, three breaths out. And then I close my eyes and then it's four things that I hear, uh, three things that I feel, two things that I smell, and one thing that I taste. And um, I started doing that a couple of years ago. It was just, I was at a, it might've even been um, one of our teachers leading a mindfulness practice um, at a meeting at our school, but I found that one to be really, really helpful. And of course, there's hundreds, maybe thousands of different mindfulness practices out there, just something that will help you in that moment to kind of calm everything down and to remain, re regain that balance. And then the final thing on how do we avoid amygdala hijack is we have to have a go-to decision-making process that slows everything down. Um, you know, we're go, go, go all the time when it comes to our pace of our day and our decisions that we make, but we need to, um, if that decision-making process is, is that you're going to jot a couple things down, or you're going to say, well, let me look into that and get back to you, um, shortly or whatever it is. And we have to get out of the habit of making, of course, there are many decisions that we just make in the moment, but the higher the stakes, and especially when our self-awareness kicks in that amygdala hijack is starting to take over, that then we need to slow everything down. And if we have a decision-making process, that can be an intentional thing that helps us to do that. So the six ways um, that, that we're, what we're talking about today is the six ways to make better decisions in high-stress situations. Number one is to avoid amygdala hijack. All right. Number two is called Remember the Space. So Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist. He became a psychiatrist after um, he was in, uh, he was, during the Holocaust, he was in Auschwitz concentration camp, and he was there for many years, and it was horrible. Um, and he wrote, a, he became a psychiatrist after the the war ended and the camps were liberated. And he also wrote a very important book called Man's Search for Meaning. So Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, I will link that in the show notes at theprivateschoolleader.com slash episode 68. And this quote has been very important to me in my practice as a private school leader. And Viktor Frankl says, quote, but between stimulus and response lies a space. In that space, lie our freedom and power to choose a response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. So I'll just read that one more time. Between stimulus and response lies a space. In that space lie our freedom and power to choose a response. In our response lies our growth and our happiness. And so I realize that's easier said than done, but I just want you to focus on that little space that exists between stimulus and response. And so we can't control what happens to us. We can't control when that kid is going to push another kid at recess or when that parent is going to drop that um, email into our inbox with all the capital letters and all the exclamation points. But what we can do 
That's the stimulus. What we can do is remember the space between stimulus and response and then choose how we react to it. You know, do we just say, oh, well, I have a temper or uh, and, and then we just react and we're um, upset most of the time? Um, or do we just, again, slow things down a little bit and think about that space between stimulus and response? And Viktor Frankl talks about how that space, him choosing how he was reacting to the horrifying things that were going on around him, to his family members, to him, the abuse, the, the murders that were taking place at Auschwitz and in the Holocaust, that the way that he got through that was to think about how he controls his response because everything else was taken away from him, his clothes, his family, his life, his possessions, and he is in Auschwitz concentration camp during the Holocaust. But the one thing they couldn't take away was his choice of how he responded to the situation around him. And so the next time that you're in a stressful situation and it feels like you just have to make a decision immediately, just pause for just a moment and remember that space between stimulus and response. Okay, we're on to number three. And number three is plan ahead. And so I listened to a TED Talk several years ago. I actually tried to find it. I couldn't find it. But it's a TED Talk where a gentleman is talking about the gist of it was is that we need to be do we need to do things and set ourselves up for success when we're smart and not under a lot of stress so that when we're under stress and doing dumb things that we're not um, going to make poor decisions. And so he um, talked about how one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to another. And that was is that he was rushing around packing, trying to get um, out the door to get to the airport to catch a flight. And that he um, could not, uh, or he did, he, excuse me, he did not leave enough time to do that. And so then he's rushing around, rushing around, and we know what happens. So he rushes around, he locks the door, um, he had street parking and no car keys. The car keys are locked inside the house along with the house keys. And so then, you know, he um, caught a cab or an Uber to the airport, blah, blah, did his flight for his business trip, came home, no, no house keys. And so he kind of like had to break, I guess he broke a basement window and then he's climbing in and the neighbor called the police and it was just this farcical, um, you know, story that was true. And his whole point was, is that, you know, if we, if he had left himself more time, if he had made sure that the car keys, let's say were in his shoe, that he was going to put on to walk out the door to go to the airport, you know, those kinds of things that we do, you know, how you put your bag, something you really don't want to forget, you put your bag in front of the back door, um, but so that you won't forget it. The whole idea is to plan ahead and to do things when we're not in those high stress situations so that when we are, that then it we will have, we will make better decisions. And so a couple of ways that we can plan ahead and to do that one, first of all, is with your handbooks, your student handbook and your employee handbook. So let me explain what I mean. So handbooks tend to take a lot of the gray areas out of what we do at school. And let's face it, as private school leaders, we live in the gray and there's all kinds of complexities and situational things and, um, 
these circumstances are different than those circumstances from that situation. But if you have a thorough handbook that addresses very clearly, you know, the attendance policy for students and the discipline policy and, you know, the dress code and just a lot of things that our handbooks typically address, but there are many schools out there that don't have a defined um, discipline policy, that if this happens, then this will be the consequence. Um, there are a lot of um, schools out there that maybe don't spend enough time on making sure that they update their handbook every year because it takes time. There's a lot of other things going on, and that's very, very tedious. But um, I've found that a very clearly written uh, student and family handbook can um, take a lot of the gray areas out of play. And then um, to take that one step further is your employee handbook. And so let's say it's a situation where as private school leaders, we're always trying to be accommodating and understanding when it comes to, let's say, a parent, a, a, a teacher whose parent is elderly parent is ill or, um, you know, something along those lines. But then it gets in it gets tricky because then they've used up all their personal days and other people are covering classes for them. And then there starts to be resentment and things like that. And, you know, I used to be in that boat where then. There, there was no consistency, you know, and then and then that causes problems. Um, but an employee handbook with clearly stated policies about um, paid time off and FMLA and um, just a lot of all, all of those different employee things that, that need to be in an employee handbook, that um, when those things come, then you can say, well, this is our policy. Um, and again, I know that we don't want to hide behind policy, but there are many times where I feel like part of the reason that we're thrust into decisions that we need to make in stressful situations that are very complex is because there's not um, a clear policy. There's no clarity on the on the um, the clarity on the expectations and the accountability. And so another thing that can help you to plan ahead um, is uh, our drills. Um, drills and skills. And I mentioned this in another episode, um, drills and skills. So drills would be planning ahead with a fire drill or a lockdown drill or a weather emergency drill. Um, and you know, you do those drills and you do them regularly. Then when you're in a highly stressful situation, not only you, but your teachers and your students will make better decisions because they've practiced. And then what about skills? Um, at our school, we've been trained in Stop the Bleed. We know how to put a tourniquet on. We've been trained in first aid. Um, we are trained in CPR. We're trained in EpiPen for anaphylactic shock. And I know that many of the um, schools that um, are run by leaders that listen to this podcast, that you've got all of that stuff squared away as well. But just remember that you can have drills and you can build skills with your staff. And then when they're in emergency situations, they're going to be much more likely to make better decisions and to keep everybody safe. And then the last thing on planning ahead is visualization. And so um, what I would say there is, is that sometimes if I'm going to have what I think is going to be a really stressful meeting with a parent, I will visualize the meeting and I will actually visualize um, something that I'm going to be doing that afternoon or that evening, having dinner with my family or whatever it might be. I'm visualizing things that happen beyond the end of the meeting and it sometimes helps to keep that meeting in perspective. Or just like an athlete would visualize a, um, shooting foul shots 
and uh, free throws in a basketball game, and that has research has proven that that increases their free throw percentage. The more that you visualize things when you are not in stressful situations will increase your ability to successfully navigate those decisions when you are in stressful situations. So visualization can actually help you as a private school leader. All right, we're, on, we're talking about six ways to make better decisions in high-stress situations. Number one, avoid amygdala hijack. Number two, remember the space. Number three, plan ahead. And number four, redefine urgency. So Dwight Eisenhower, um, uh, one of, the, of our presidents of the United States, he is famously known for saying, what is important is seldom urgent, and what is urgent is seldom important. And that's where the Eisenhower matrix came from that many of you are familiar with, where on one axis it's importance and on the other axis it's urgency. And then you're trying to, you know, spend more time on things that are important um, but not urgent. Those are like the long-term planning things that are important for moving our schools forward. But unfortunately, we tend to live in the zone of things that are urgent and not important. And so you're familiar with the Eisenhower matrix. But I want to tell you this, and you've probably heard me say this before. Your definition of urgent and other people's definition of urgent are rarely the same. And so, you know, whether it be the office staff or your teachers or students or parents, you know, we live in a society now where everything is just instant. And there's not a whole lot of differentiation among companies about their products or their services. And so one of the things that differentiates them is how quickly can they deliver it to your house? How quickly can they close on the home loan? How quickly can they do fill in the blank? Okay. And so we live in this urgent society and then other people want to apply urgency to a situation. And that kind of then makes us feel like we need to hurry up, hurry up, hurry up and make a decision. Um, an example of how your definition of urgent is different from other people's definition of urgent. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but you get called to a classroom and you hustle there because you're just not sure what is waiting for you there. Is there, was there a fight? Was it, you know, you have no idea. Um, did someone fall and hit their head? You know, so you're on your way, you're, you're hustling to get to room 219, let's say. And you get there and then the teacher steps into the doorway and is like, um, I just wanted to see if it was okay if I left 20 minutes early, you know, to go to a dentist appointment. And so, you know, some of that's a communication problem, but some of it is an urgency um, problem. Def defining urgency, that's what you're going to do. You're going to redefine urgency. Why do you think they call it the tyranny of the urgent? Tyranny implies tyrannical control. And the tyranny of the urgent is, is that the situation, the urgency of the situation is controlling the situation. And so that doesn't sound like good decision making when you're in the tyranny of the urgent. So you want to take back control and you want to ask yourself, is this urgent or is this important? And then react accordingly. And then number five on our list of ways to make better decisions in high stress situations. Number five is to gather information. And so we're in our mode at school, right? And we're solving problems quickly and things are coming at us. We're playing whack-a-mole. We're just decision, decision, decision. 
But sometimes we need to gather more information. We need to talk to the teacher, or we need to talk to a couple students, or we need to talk to the teacher that was on recess duty, or look at the handbook, or maybe even sometimes talk to an attorney, or talk to the school nurse and get more information about a situation before we make a decision. And I'm not saying every time, but I am saying that we live as private school leaders, our pace is fast, 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 fast. And a lot of times there's pressure for a quick decision. And what we need to remember is, is that a correct decision is more important than a quick decision, right? A correct decision is more important than a quick decision. And so let's not give in to that tyranny of the urgent and other people's definition of urgent. And one way we can slow things down is to gather some information. Now, I will give a disclaimer on this because I've been guilty of this before too, is, is that sometimes I'm just procrastinating and I don't want to make the decision because it's going to be really uncomfortable. And then I am saying that I'm gathering all this information and I am gathering information, but I kind of don't need all that information. And so it's it's good way to slow us down when we're making um, quick decisions, but we need to guard ourselves against gathering information as a um, really a disguise for procrastination. And then finally, number six in our strategies for uh, how to make better decisions in stressful situations is that I'm going to encourage you to ask yourself two questions. And think of these two questions as kind of common sense filters when you're under a lot of stress. Um, the two questions are, number one, does this decision keep people safe? And number two, is this an ethical decision? So number one, does this decision keep people safe? So it could be physically safe. Um, you know, I mentioned before about like a snow delay or a closure, or it could be about transportation to a, a basketball game. You know, is it carpool or is it, um, you know, putting that one extra kid on a, on a vehicle and that kid doesn't have a seatbelt. But here's my point is, is that sometimes convenience or rushing um, the one thing we sacrifice is safety and then we live to regret it. And so again, slowing things down, but asking yourself, does this keep people physically safe? And then does this keep people emotionally safe? And so sometimes that gives us courage to make a tough decision about a, a bully in our school or a bully parent in our school. Um, and sometimes though, it also leads us to um, want to justify a decision and share confidential information and blame other people, throw someone else under the bus. So my point is, is that it's not just about the decision that you make, but then it's also about if you're feeling like the spotlight is on you, do we, you know, or are we keeping people emotionally safe when we're sharing confidential information that we gathered to make this decision in the first place? And then finally, you're asking, is this an ethical decision? So is it the right thing to do? And will my integrity be intact after I make this decision? So ask yourself, is this an ethical decision? So what are the big takeaways from today's episode? We've been discussing the six ways to make better decisions in high stress situations. So number one is avoid amygdala hijack and think about what happens to the brain um, biologically during those high stress situations. Number two, remember the space there's a space between stimulus, stimulus and response, according to Viktor Frankl. Number three, plan ahead. Handbooks, drills and skills, and visualization. 
Number four, redefine urgency. Remember that other people's definition of urgency and your definition are rarely the same. Number five, gather information. Sometimes um, bigger decisions merit um, slowing down and making sure that you have all the facts before you make an informed decision. And then number six is to ask yourself two questions. Does this decision keep people safe? And is this an ethical decision? And I like to end every episode with a call to action. And so your call to action is to start a Google Doc and name it next year's handbook. Maybe you put the school year on it, next year's school year. And then as things come up during the school year where it's like not in the handbook or like there needs to be some editing done to that because it was unclear and that caused a sticky situation, you just put it on the Google Doc and then put a calendar. The second action is to put a calendar reminder for late spring and then you open up that Google Doc and then you have it available to update your handbook so that you're not kicking yourself a year later when the same exact thing happens. So your call to action is to start a Google Doc and name it next year's handbook to capture those things as they come up during the school year in real time. So let's wrap it up. Um, I want to give you a free gift and say thank you for listening to the podcast. And it's called The Seven Steps to Having Successful Meetings with Upset Parents. This guide is an 11-page PDF that gives you a step-by-step plan to have better meetings with the parents at your school. Every good coach has a game plan. Every good teacher has a lesson plan. But too many private school leaders don't have a plan when they sit down to meet with an upset parent. Well, now you have a step-by-step plan. And you can grab this guide, The 7 Steps to Having Successful Meetings with Upset Parents, by going to theprivateschoolleader.com slash meeting. That's theprivateschoolleader.com slash meeting. And if you're getting value from the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email at mark.o.minkus at gmail.com. And if you are not yet subscribed to this podcast, please do so, so that you never miss an episode. And again, you can grab the show notes for today's episode at theprivatescoolleader.com slash episode 68. And a new episode comes out every week on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review the podcast so that it gets pushed out as suggested content. And I'm on Instagram at the private school leader, on Twitter at the PS leader. And again, please share this link to this um, episode or to this podcast with another leader in your life and an aspiring leader at your school. And I've been your host, Mark Minkus. I really, really appreciate you and all of your dedication and hard work at your school. Thank you so much for taking time to join me here today. And I will see you next time on the Private School Leader Podcast. And until then, always remember to serve first, lead second, and make a difference.